When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Chelsea thoroughly beaten at Ellen Road. Will that result hasten their pursuit of Aubameyang and Fafana? And Manchester United set to sign an experienced international who's won it all at Real Madrid. So what could possibly go wrong? I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast. from Aronson, he's still under pressure, Aronson has scored, he took it off the toes of the goalkeeper and he only had to roll the ball into the back of the net, sensational stuff, Brendan Aronson, quick as you like, brilliant thinking, 1-0 leads. So Chelsea encountered a lead team at full tilt yesterday, losing 3-0 at Ellen Road, Koulibaly sent off late on. Uh, off the pitch, however, they continue to be linked with a load of new signings at Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, Wesley Fofana at Leicester, Ante Gordon from Everton. Uh, David Ornstein has been on the trail of all these moves. Let's just get the latest from him now. Well, this week we should finally receive some definitive clarity on the future of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang at Barcelona. We know Chelsea are interested in signing him and we revealed on The Athletic last Friday that they had now submitted a bid to Barcelona for £15 million with Marcus Alonso going in the opposite direction. We didn't know how Barcelona would respond to that, but it was always going to be quite complicated because they haven't even managed to register one of their star signings this summer, Jules Koundé. So doing so for Alonso was problematic. Secondly, the soundings we were getting from the Barcelona end were that their long-standing interest in Alonso may now have called. And so their preference was to do this in straight cash rather than a part exchange involving a player. Straight cash, of course, would be beneficial to their financial predicament. Personal terms between Chelsea and Aubameyang are not expected to be a problem. So it will all come down to the clubs and whether they can agree a fee. Chelsea might have a bit more urgency to do that in the wake of their defeat at Leeds United. Barcelona may ask for more money as a result. Who knows? The conversations went on over the weekend and I'm sure they'll continue into the start of the week. But I do get the sense that this deal has a very good chance of happening before the transfer window closes. And Chelsea will, of course, want to do more business too. Wesley Fofana of Leicester City remains a firm target of theirs. From a number of conversations I've had, it feels like there is a good chance that this will happen before the deadline. But at this point, Chelsea are not at the financial level where Leicester are prepared to do business. Let's see if that changes in the days ahead. Then it's a similar situation with Anthony Gordon at Everton. A firm target of Chelsea, but they need to present an offer that Everton are willing to accept. Everton, of course, have their own financial issues, but Gordon is their star player. They've already sold Richarlison this summer. 
he's an academy graduate, he's homegrown, he's one of their own. And if they are going to survive in the Premier League, then they will want to have Gordon as part of their squad. You can check out David's column on The Athletic today as he has news of Arsenal making Wolves as Pedro Neto their top target for the remainder of the window. And apparently Nottingham Forest aren't done yet. Uh, they're about to sign their 58th player of the window, according to David and Sergio Reguillon, uh, which maybe Jack can tell us about uh, in a moment from the Tottenham end of things. Um, but to talk Chelsea, uh, Liam Toomey, the Athletics Chelsea correspondent, is with us along with Jack Pitt-Brook. Um, for all their transfer dealings, do they need to buy a new plane as well? Because uh, apparently that was that was the reason for the defeat, wasn't it? Yeah, this was a really bizarre thing that we didn't get wind of before the game. Tuchel mentioned in his post-match interview to the BBC. Even more bizarre because it apparently wasn't an issue for the players who were still able to fly up to Leeds, but the coaching staff had to get the bus, uh, according to Tuchel. Which, I mean, if, if Chelsea wanted some social media content, they should have put a camera on that bus for the road trip. That would have been absolutely brilliant. Better than anything Chelsea produced on the pitch. Didn't Tuchel offer to drive the bus himself? Uh, I'm sure I remember that at, uh, during the when Chelsea were hit by sanctions at the end of the Roman Ramovich era last season. Tuchel, I'm sure he said something like, if as long as we've got a bus, I'll drive it to all the games. So surely he would have been delighted to have got the chance to do this. You've got a great memory, Jack. I, c- I cannot remember that far back at this point. So much has happened. But um, no, that was a very good line from Tuchel. And you have to wonder who did drive that bus in the end. Um, I, I, you know, we're having a bit of a laugh about it. But d- does it highlight maybe a, just a frustration with him at, at the moment? about how the summer is going or have I, have I put two and two together there and come up with you know seven no I don't think that's a stretch at all I think Tuchel has been on a real emotional roller coaster this summer there were, there were there were points earlier in the summer where he was extremely frustrated with the lack of progress that Chelsea were making on on transfers that's eased a bit of course I think he he, he was genuinely very happy to get players of the quality of, of Koulibaly and Sterling and, and more recently Kukureye and they were all players that he wanted and they've all players they're all players that have improved Chelsea I think you can see on the pitch they look like they've been playing for this team for years Years, uh, and have been part of some of the better stretches of football they've played but the frustration's creeping in again now because I think it you know we're seeing it, it in in parts against Everton certainly against Leeds that some of the same old issues are there with with this team and that dogged them last season and they're not issues that are necessarily going to be entirely solved by more signings there are there are quite a few disaffected players still in the squad there's maybe a sense of staleness as well about the way Chelsea play and the and the, the system that Tuchel is continuing with there's quite a few players being shoehorned out of position Reese James playing more defensively Loftus-Cheek as a wing back Conor Gallagher was probably playing a more defensive role yesterday than he's used to. There's there's a few too many square pegs in round holes and when you add to that injuries to to key players like N'Golo Kante, it's very easy to for Chelsea to to fall out of the the best rhythm that Tuchel's looking for. I, I suppose the balance of that a little bit, Jack, is they were really good for large parts of the game against Tottenham last weekend and were a, you know, VAR hair pull away from probably winning 
that game as well, just to put it into a bit of context. Yeah, I thought they were sensational against Tottenham, for, certainly for the first maybe 60-70 minutes. They reminded me of the Chelsea team that won the Champions League in Tuchel's first half season. You know, they had so they were so well organised, they were very difficult to play against, they I mean, they pushed high up the pitch, but it was difficult for Tottenham to get through them, and they had so much movement up front, because they, did, you know, they didn't have Lukaku, they didn't have an old-fashioned number nine. They had a lot of movement from Havertz and Sterling. Uh, I really enjoyed watching them play and I I came away from that game thinking maybe I should be more bullish about Chelsea's chances this season so I'd be really interested to hear Liam's theory on why why there was that massive drop-off from the brilliant against Tottenham for so long and then not at the races at all uh, Ellen Road yesterday. Well I think um, a big part of it is Kante I mean you, you saw in that Tottenham game he was he was peak Kante that that was the Kante that helped Chelsea win the Champions League that got man of the match in both legs of the semi-final and the final and for him to go down in the closing stages of that game was just devastating for for Tuchel. Tuchel openly complained about Kante's lack of availability um, towards the end of last season, saying that he's our Salah, he's our De Bruyne, but he only plays 50% of the games. And now he's out for weeks, as Tuchel said on Friday. It wouldn't surprise me for him to be out longer than initially expected as well, because that's tended to be the way it's gone with Kante and he is so crucial what he does in terms of generating those ball recoveries but also using the ball really well and helping Chelsea to cope helping Jorginho to cope especially with more high intensity pressing opponents like Leeds I think he was a massive miss at Ellen Road and, and a big reason why Chelsea started getting turned over and beaten back after the first sort of 10 minutes or so and why the warning signs were kind of there um, before Edouard Mendy's howler. But weren't there, weren't there rumours that Kante could have gone in the summer as well? I mean, I, I don't believe everything that I read and hear, unless it comes from David, obviously. But it, it, it's, are they just, were they just rumours? Or does it highlight, I don't know, a slightly mixed bag of a transfer policy at the moment? We never got any sense from the Chelsea side that Kante was, was realistically going to leave or even that there was a, a kind of market for him. In, in any case, given the way Tuchel has talked about him publicly, it would have been absolutely stunning if Tuchel had gone on with gone along with any sort of move like that. He still regards him as absolutely fundamental to this team and the success of this system. But the problem is you don't get Pete Kante anywhere near as often as you used to and you don't even get him available anywhere near as often as you used to. And that that's a problem Chelsea is still trying to navigate. At the same time, Mateo Kovacic has had his own injury concerns. Jorginho's athletically limited in some ways. Conor Gallagher is a very, very good player, but I think we saw against Leeds that he's more of a natural number eight rather than a number six. And positionally, he was caught out a little bit. He was caught on the ball a bit too much. I think he, he's got a big adaptation to make to a team that has the ball all the time, as opposed to a team like Palace where he could move off the ball. And then you've got guys like Loftus-Cheek as well, who aren't quite as clean fits to the point where Tuchel would rather start him at wing back. So that you can see why they're looking at Frankie de Jong, because they do need a succession plan in the centre of midfield. Is that a possibility? Window. Is that a possibility this window? I mean, given given everything that's going on with, with Barcelona and around De Jong, did Chelsea still think they could get him? I think, I, th- I think they're still there and they're still waiting to see if there's an opportunity. Tuchel's been really pushing for it behind the scenes, although publicly he pushed back against the need for a, for a new central midfielder after the Leeds game. I think no one knows 
how to read the Barcelona situation. They, they've obviously gone so far in trying to push De Jong out and he's so far refused and, and no one knows how it's going to play out before the window closes. But I still think we're in a situation where if Frankie De Jong leaves Barcelona in this window, it, it will most likely be to Chelsea. And it, he, he would definitely strengthen an area of need. But as we saw against Leeds, it's not the only area of need. Liam, how would you rank the, the kind of the extent to which they need a centre-back, a number nine, a central midfielder. Because it seems to me from, you know, obviously watching a lot of, lot of Chelsea less than you, that the centre-forward would probably be number one and then maybe centre-back number two and then midfield number three, which would make me think may, maybe De Jong, maybe the appetite won't quite be there to do De Jong this time just because they need other positions more. I think they've needed a really transcendent clinical attacker for, for a while now but I just don't know who that player is or where it will come from I'm not sure if a 33 year old Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang is, is the answer even if he's a player that Thomas Tuchel has worked with extremely well in the past you know this is a player that, that Arsenal were desperate to get rid of as recently as February so I, I'm, I'm not sure if he's the answer and we haven't heard any other names there's no suggestion that if Chelsea don't get a Bamiyang, they will go in the market for another for another elite level forward. I think it's actually quite close in terms of urgency between forward and centre back because although they do have more bodies in those positions, as we saw at Ellen Road, that they, they have a problem at set pieces where they don't have anyone who's really aerially dominant. Kaladu Kulabali is is actually a lot worse in the air than people would assume. I've, lo- I've looked at the numbers. Um, from his time at Napoli and and Wesley Fofana would definitely address that but most importantly I think he would stop Thomas Tuchel picking Rhys James on the right of the back three Rhys James is Chelsea's best attacking player he's the most consistently dangerous attacker that Chelsea have but they've kept Um, but they've kept Aspilicueta haven't they Liam so so he signed a new deal so uh, why is Aspilicueta I mean I know there's age and all of that and height and this that and the other if you want but the times that I've seen Chelsea with Aspilicueta on the right of a three and Reese James on on the right of a, a as the right wing back has worked very well for them and and they can they can switch if required so why has he gone away from that I, I get the I get the reason why you actually would want Fafana completely but I don't get why you would imbalance the side necessarily when you've got two players there that have functioned in the roles. Well, I think an int- a very interesting subplot of Chelsea's season so far has been, does Tuchel actually trust Azpilicueta to play anymore? Even though he got that new contract, that, that new contract was was very much owner-led, uh, as Azpilicueta himself made clear um, in the quotes that he gave after it was signed. And for Tuchel to pick Ruben Loftus-Cheek at wing-back against Tottenham and then stick with it against Leeds with Reese James on the right of that back three rather than going to Azpilicueta and then only really going to Azpilicueta against Leeds when the game was gone suggests to me that he's quite low down in the pecking order right now and quite low down in Tuchel's thinking even though he's club captain even though he's been such a big figure at Chelsea for a long time I think athletically he's been showing signs of slippage um, in terms of his ability to move around the pitch he's certainly not a good fit to play wing back anymore and I think Tuchel even has doubts on his ability to, to play on the right of that three against Premier League opponents who generally have quite fast attackers but the problem with putting James there is as I've said you lose so much from Chelsea's attack because he's just so consistently dangerous on the overlap he can score himself put in brilliant crosses he helps Chelsea's possession game because he's just so good on the ball and so having Fofana there would kind of solve the problem in, in all aspects Why um and this is nothing against Anthony Gordon, obviously, who's a very good player. But why do they want Anthony Gordon? It's a very good question. Um, I think primarily because of his work off the ball. I think he's an, he's an excellent presser. He works really hard. Those are things that Tuchel really values. But I was talking to a colleague yesterday 
you know, was pointing out that he scored four goals in his career and apparently three of those were deflected. <laughs> so he's he's not exactly an, an, an elite scorer. He's not exactly going to address the single biggest issue with Chelsea's attacking options. He does more broadly fit with something else Bowley has done this summer, which is aggressively target young talent and be willing to pay big money um, to sign some of the best young players around. But it is a strange one for that price. When you think that Chelsea... You know, we're willing to pay fifty million pounds for Raheem Sterling, a guy, a proven Premier League champion, consistent performer over a number of years in the prime of his career. Paying that kind of price for Anthony Gordon would be a very different equation, and it would be still a bet on potential, really, even at that price, which is kind of crazy to think about. Why not just play Callum Hudson and Doy? Yeah, I, I, I kind of get the impression that just things are a little bit soured there. Too much has has gone under the bridge. You know, Hudson Odoi has always had, or you know, Hudson Odoi and his representatives have always had a slightly testy relationship with Chelsea, particularly the old the old regime. There was, of course, the, the flirtation with Bayern and the, the contract negotiations that were pretty acrimonious. And I think the lack of minutes he's had under Tuchel have just kind of exacerbated all of that. And this is all a situation that the, the new ownership have, have inherited. Hudson Odoi, I think, has two years left on his current deal, and he really, he really wants to play big minutes this season. He wants to be a regular starter somewhere. And uh, I think when you look at his career minutes, you know, I, I did a piece last week comparing him with the other members of England's Under-17 World Cup winners from 2017, and the guy he was always compared with at the time was Jaden Sancho. He's played half as many minutes total in his senior career and, and a third as many in, in the league. So I, I, he's lost a lot of development time. His big his Achilles injury was a big part of that. But I think he feels like he's at a point now where he just needs to play regularly. And, and so Bowley's focus seems to be trying to ensure that he leaves on loan rather than permanently. I, obviously, uh, Tom Bowley is an incredibly wealthy man, but already Chelsea have spent, what, 60-odd on Kukurea, 50 on Sterling, 35-40 on, on Koulibaly, something like that. Liam, would you say? Yeah, 34, 34, I think it was. 34. So, so you're talking about 140 million roughly now. You know, if Fafana comes in looking at the figures, that could, that will take it to, to 220. And Gordon could take it to 270, just on the rough figures that are going. That's before they, they go Aubameyang, which will be small change in comparison. And Frankie de Jong is 70. I mean, are, will other clubs go, how? How? I mean, 350, the best part of 300 million quid in a transfer window. It's astonishing. And I think if it if it were to pan out that way, it's something that we haven't seen any club do in any window in, in terms of pure net spend. Uh, and it's it's one of the things that I'm trying to find out at the moment is what is the broader strategy here? How are Chelsea looking to make this work in terms of UEFA's financial controls, the Premier League's financial controls? Because it just is an, um, an unprecedented level of investment. And one of the most surprising bits of it for me is that they're, is that they're dropping massive fees on guys like Carney Chukwamika and, and Cesare Cassidy when they've got... I've forgotten him to add to the, the funds as well. Well, those those fees are really eye-catching when you consider that they, they had so much need for first-team spending. They still feel like they've got the, the latitude to do this. I think they will try to bring some more money in through sales. It's really not been easy this summer. They brought some in for Timo Werner. I think that was a, a good deal just to get out of his contract and, and get some money in a transfer fee. There are a lot of players that they will probably try to sell for fairly nominal fees. There are other players like Emerson, maybe like Billy Gilmore as well, um, who they could maybe get slightly more from, from another Premier League club. Uh, so I, I'm not sure the the net spend will be you know close as close to zero in the out column and, and, and 
quite so much in the in column when all said and done, but they are looking at a massive net spend, whatever happens. But th- this and, is uh, kind of not really... I mean, I'm sure some Chelsea fans are probably quite encouraged by this because uh, certainly when the takeover happened, there were, you know, some people, me included, suspected that mate, Todd Bowley might end up to be a kind of Stan Kroenke in trainers and a hoodie. But in fact, he seems to be much more willing to, to go out there and spend money and back the team and try and make them be competitive than, than simply, you know, trying to manage a tight ship and keep them in fourth. Yeah, and I think there was also the the school of thought that, you know, 66% of the club is now owned by Clear Lake Capital, a private equity firm. And you don't normally associate private equity firms with, with this, you know, massive initial spend. You know, the, the, the thought was maybe are they going to try and run this as a business, you know, strip down costs and try and make as much profit as possible. But the messaging coming in was always, you know, that, that they want to grow the the value of the club to keep the club winning and that was their path towards making Chelsea a, a financially sustainable and eventually financially profitable institution rather than stripping things back so they were they were made to give some sort of guarantees to Rain Group during the bidding process of investment in the squad as well as in the stadium and, and other aspects but I think even Chelsea supporter groups um, probably wouldn't have expected this level of transfer spending so early on there were there were clearly immediate needs to to strengthen the defense and i think most people were expecting two three high profile players to come in but for for todd bowley especially todd bowley to inter, to assume this interim sporting director title and then go on what appears to be a, a multi-million pound trolley dash uh, is has been pretty remarkable and there, there's almost been 2003 vibes about it about what Chelsea are doing this summer. Liam, thank you very much for joining us this pod. We shouldn't forget how good Leeds were yesterday. So let's dip into the Athletics Leeds podcast, uh, the Phil Hay Show. Okay, maybe gets his name in the title. Uh, and see how they reacted to that brilliant win. And you just felt something coming together. I think it helps as well that Ellen Road is, is that sort of ground that, you know, is disappearing rapidly out of football. It, it is tight. It is aggressive. It's a crowd who get on top of you, particularly if you concede a goal like Chelsea did for the first one, Mendy's mistake, Aronson's pressing, forcing that mistake, and then a tapping from the goal line. That is the sort of thing that puts big pressure on a side like Chelsea. And, and I got the impression as the game went on that they absolutely hated yesterday's match. They hated the atmosphere. They hated the, the stress that they were under and the pressure that they were under. And, the crowd fascinated me yesterday because the atmosphere was absolutely wild. And we got into talking on our Friday podcast last week about entitlement and expectation. And you were asking the question, you know, are, are fans too entitled? Do they expect too much? Do they want too much of the clubs and their teams? But I think all you saw yesterday at Ellen Road was total and utter appreciation. And I think appreciation is what you get from Ellen Road when you deliver like that and you play like that. I think, as I say, that that is easy to fall in love with. And I don't think anybody was going away from the stadium yesterday saying they wanted more than Marsh was able to give them. I think they, they wanted exactly what they, they got. And if you're a Leeds fan and you want more of that, then just search for the Phil Hay Show wherever you get your pods. Hello, I'm James Richardson. If, like me, you've ever felt like one of Cantona's cows watching gamely as football steams past like an express train, then why not join me three times a week over on the Totally Football Show? This Monday, for example, I'll be joined by Daniel Storey, Tom Williams and Benji Lignardo to explain what actually happened this Premier League weekend. Huh. Tuesday, it's the turn of the Euro crew, Horncastle, Honigstein, Alvaro Romeo and Julian Laurence to drop knowledge on all the continent's big stories, including this week the biggest last-minute 
minute comeback in Bundesliga history. Woof. Thursday then, it's back to our septic aisle to preview the weekend's Premier League games again with data beta Duncan Alexander and this week analysis from Carl Anker and Adrian Clark. Join us then for cogent insight, fun and a few feeble puns plus the odd move from me to search for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This is a paid advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Do you ever get that feeling that you need to get something off your chest? We all carry around different stresses, big and small. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to release and discuss those thoughts and feelings and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a licensed therapist. And if things don't click, you can switch to someone new at any time with no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to this podcast, you can get 10% off your first month of online therapy by heading to betterhelp.com slash athleticfootball. That's betterhel dot com slash athleticfootball with no spaces. Right, let's move on to uh, Manchester United. Uh, the Athletics' Carl Anker is with us. Where are we up to with their um, six-month pursuit of, sorry, six-week pursuit, of, sorry, six-day pursuit of, uh, of Casemiro? Due to the numbers involved, I'm reluctant to say the Glazer family are shopping at the petrol station for their Christmas presents, but it does feel somewhat haphazard. By all accounts, a verb, uh, some form of agreement has been made. That's on the club website. Casemiro is going to be a Manchester United player. He is unlikely to, to be involved in any form of starting lineup or, or substitute appearance for Manchester United against Liverpool, but I would not be surprised if he made an appearance in a club suit or something in a similar fashion to Rafa Varane did before the game against Leeds last season. Is that because the club suits are available to buy in the in the shop? Is that why they might do that? Or <laughs> so they could use it to sell some merchandise before the start of the game. Um, do you know what I find quite interesting about this move? Jack, and then uh, Carl can come back in, is you ask United fans, uh, do you know, are you excited about this? Do you like this? And on the one hand, they look at the player and his career and what he might provide and go, yes. And then on the other hand, they look at a whole line of players who have joined at similar stages of their career on top of the fact they've only seemed to have wanted him for the last week and and are already fearful that it's deja vu. Yeah, I get that. It does definitely have the feeling of that kind of, like, immediate post-Ferguson era. You know, the sort of Schweinsteiger era, Schweinsteiger de Maria era of signings. On the plus side, two weeks ago, in, a, in a, admittedly in a different part of the pitch, they were being linked with Marco Arnautovic. And when <laughs> when the Marco Arnautovic deal fell through, I thought, I thought to myself, if somebody had told me deal for Marco Arnautovic collapses in the middle of August... I would have guessed it was Everton, maybe, maybe Newcastle at a push. Like it's not a Manchester, like you know, all due respect to Marco Nautovic, not a Manchester United player, not a Manchester United level signing. Casemiro, the guy's won five Champions Leagues. Like you know, he's a big shot. 
he's a big he's a superstar he's the best in the world at what he's done at what he does over the course of the last 10 years and he does at least bring with him that kind of like a bit of glamour a bit of glamour and a bit of prestige and a bit of cachet because of the career he's had so look if, if i were a manchester united fan god forbid i think i would be you know i would be quite i would i would be pleased about getting this guy in the door it does as well carl give i mean if this is all sorted as michael cox has written about on the athletic it does it does give united bizarrely the brazilian midfield yes yes i think that's that's a very interesting wrinkle for everyone involved as jack just said casemiro is one of the best players at what he does at being a number six he's Brazil's number six ahead of uh, Fabinho for Liverpool of Liverpool and he played in that position ahead of Fernandinho of Manchester City for that point in time as well but and I really feel as if I have to put the butt here what Casemiro is good at is tackling interceptions being you know the, the very much the water carrier ahead of the two fantastic midfield passes uh, midfield generals that were Luka Modric and, and Tony Cruz so Casemiro solves one area of need for Manchester United. He solves one issue for Manchester United. But there are a myriad of issues within Manchester United's midfield that Casemiro does not fix. And I think a good way to look at this is if you look at, my apologies to Manchester United fans, if you look at the four goals they conceded against Brentford, Casemiro's presence in the United starting lineup would probably stop the fourth goal from happening. That counter-attack goal where Brentford break to the other end, Casemiro would probably know the correct area to stand in or, or would probably take a yellow card to stop that. The third goal from the set piece, Casemiro might have a way of disrupting that goal from occurring uh, due to what he knows from set piece defending. The second goal where David De Gea you know, essentially passes into Christian Eriksen and Christian Eriksen doesn't really know what to do as he's he's the deepest line player and the best one to receive. Casemiro can't necessarily solve. He's not the passer. He's not the person that if you want to play out from the back you give it to Casemiro first. Casemiro is a very conservative passer and gave it to the other midfield players of Real Madrid. He doesn't solve that issue. He can't solve the first issue the goal that United conceded because that's De Gea just not doing proper goalkeeper. So he makes United better, but not better in the ways that Ten Hag spoke of United needing to play this summer. Uh, you can take some of the quotes from preseason when he was in Australia and talked about why he was so interested in Frankie de Jong and the importance of ball progression. And then you say, okay, well, Casemiro doesn't fix that. Just this end to the de Jong pursuit. I think that the Jong pursuit is on ice for now. Uh, I think also what, what's, what's quite funny is Casemiro is probably the perfect player to play next to Manchester United's Paul Pogba, if Paul Pogba was still there. To reinforce how, how this deal is good, but also a little bit odd and, and several years too late. You've got the perfect midfield partner for Paul Pogba in the summer that Paul Pogba was the pilot on the free. I'm sure Carl's right that Casemiro is not the guy who is going to enable Ten Hag to dominate the ball the way that he wants, start moves from the back the way that he wants, all that kind of stuff. Like, he just isn't that kind of player. But maybe he's the guy who ends this kind of phase of collapse. You know? you know, I mean, what, happened, what we saw at Brentford the other day that can't happen. That just can't be allowed to happen at United. Like that, but particularly that fourth goal. And you, you, you need some. You know, sometimes a manager can't always start by playing. You, you can't start in a managerial job and play the way you want to play from day one. You know, when Jurgen Klopp went into Liverpool, he couldn't play the way he wanted to play from day one. He had to compromise. Uh, Pep Guardiola's first season at Manchester City, he had to compromise. 
You know, he he spent a lot that first season with Sanya and Zabaleta and Kolarov in the team and, you know, solid guys who'd been there for a while before he managed to kind of get the team playing the kind of 75% possession football that they did in subsequent years. So I think there's always, at the start of any tenure, there's a degree of, of pragmatism and compromise. And maybe that's what Casemiro represents. Possibly. I would be slightly reluctant to call this pragmatism when you consider the fee involved. Uh, it, but you, if they've got the money, it's pragmatic to spend the money to fix a problem. That's a big if, and and the manner in which Manchester United spend and have spent in the in the previous summers does suggest they are sort it now and we'll figure out the less later on. This is very much finding a, a very good football player to to paper over some large cracks in Manchester United's midfield, and that is good to a point. The length of his contract and the fact he's thirty years of age and the fact that oh, I'm I'm going to assume there's going to be very little possible resale value. Okay, fine. You've got Casemiro. You've got a very good player in that position. You now need to build around Casemiro. You now need to get players who can do the things Casemiro is not so good at. If it was Casemiro and Frankie Dion in the same summer, fantastic. Manchester United away at the races. You can all change your top four predictions. But if it is indeed that Brazilian midfield of Fred and Casemiro or, or Casemiro and say Christian Eriksen, then you're looking at a team that, and I mean this as a compliment and a little bit of a annoyance, you have a team that are best suited to playing a style of football Ole Gunnar Solskjaer played at Manchester United in 2019 and 2020. They've spent quite a bit of money to end up where they were a couple of years ago. And at a time where so many other top four and top six rivals appear to be going forward, there is a, a gap and a reason why I think some Manchester United fans aren't totally excited about this. I think there's a lot to be said for crack papering when you just lost to Brentford and Brighton. <laughs> And, and just to uh, just to remind you, if you're listening to this on a Tuesday, uh, this was recorded before Manchester United, Liverpool. So we have no idea how big the cracks that need papering are after that game at Old Trafford, or if it even went ahead for that matter. On top of Casemiro, where, where are they at with Anthony now, who now wasn't in the Ajax squad yesterday, and who's who's price during this this transfer window? appears, Carl, to have doubled. I mean, that's some negotiated technique, that. I think there is a point in time, and this is not just for Manchester United, but all of us, even on civilian level, where you spend money on a product, but you're not necessarily spending money on the product. You're spending money on your lack of proper planning a while ago. So if I'm at the train station from Manchester to London and I haven't charged my phone and I go into WH Smith and I have to buy a battery pack and a battery pack costs me 40 quid, that's because I didn't charge my phone last night. Then, okay, that's my 40 pound foolishness tax shall we say or, or uh, if you haven't pre-booked your train ticket and have to get one just on the day then it costs roughly the same amount that Ajax are asking for Anthony so there's a good analogy as well yeah. something or other you know the, the foolishness tax the lack of proper planning tax uh, and I, you could probably apply this to Casemiro there are a number of younger players in the number six role that Manchester United possibly could have got that are very good at things Casemiro are good at that United haven't didn't collect in the summer and now they've had to pay 60 possibly up to 70 million to get Casemiro. I think the Anthony situation is very interesting. Uh, Eric Ten Hag appears very keen on him uh, as we have seen Eric Ten Hag has been quite keen on a number of players who are either Ajax educated or, or have experience in the Eredivisie. Uh, Ajax have made it very clear they have no intention to sell. Anthony has given an interview in the Dutch Telegraph over the weekend where he said he cannot guarantee to Ajax fans where he will be on September 2nd, which was one of those very cryptic things. Uh, he didn't play in their game against Sparta Rotterdam. A, a, I think it was a kind of close 1-0 victory for Ajax. Uh, he, Ajax could not claim he was injured as Anthony put up an Instagram story of him playing head tennis with friends. So that's where we are on the Ajax perspective. Ajax 
to my mind, have already got the Anthony replacement through the door this summer. They seem to have a secession plan there. Uh, and they're playing this game very well. They have no intention to sell this man. They understand the longer they hold on to him, the more likely Manchester United might be to, to bid for Anthony. I think 100 million, or well, the initial bid was 80 million, then to 94, and a possible conversation that might rise harder. I think that is overpay. I'm going to be nice and just call it overpay. I think for the player Anthony is and for what he can offer Manchester United, I think that would be far too much money. I also think if you consider Manchester United spent the better part of 73 million to get Jadon Sancho uh, a couple of seasons ago to play on the right wing, what you'd you'd be better off doing is is either getting another player at the area of the visa. You know, Manchester United are interested in Cody Gakpo from PSV Eindhoven or uh, something I've suggested for a long time, which is use possibly half of that money to get a better right back. Whoever plays on the right wing for Manchester United needs to have a proper overlapping right back. Diogo Dallo is now essentially playing by default as Juan Basaka doesn't appear to be in the plaza. Eric Ten Hag. And Diogo Dallo is a curate's egg of a football player. He's neither wholly good nor wholly bad. I cannot quite tell what he's good at. He's six out of ten in everything, which um, you know he could be Ten Hag's dream and Ten Hag could mould him into the fantastic fullback. Or he could just be a jack of all trades and master of none. Do you think maybe it might make more sense like strategically, financially, to instead of buying Anthony, to focus on coaching and improving Jadon Sancho? I, I like, he's still there, presumably, Sancho. Yes, the player that Jadon Sancho is there is still there. And he would benefit from having a better right-back doing Diogo Dalla. That's not to say I think Dalla is not good enough, but I think Dalla is another player that needs coaching. He needs. We need to find out what Dalla is good at, yet the, the sample size of all the things he's supposed to be good at isn't necessarily large enough, and the things that he's not so good at is are he hasn't necessarily got the glaring falls or the glaring strengths or, you know, or the outstanding strengths for me to understand what he is and I think United could probably benefit from getting a player who's a little bit more intensive uh, in their overlapping runs and that could make any right-sided attacker better uh, I also think if Manchester United wanted to get someone like Gakpo from PSV that could open up some some further options in the attack but uh, 100 you know, 80 to 100 million bids for Anthony this summer are suboptimal to my slightly cold spreadsheet view of football. It just seems to me like, I mean, look, spending money on Casemiro, I think, is pragmatic because United don't have anybody who can do what he does in that position. So they're obviously better, you know, they will be better at defending against counterattacks if they spend the money and get this guy in. But spending the money on Anthony doesn't seem to make sense because I don't see what Anthony, like what you would get, like what marginal benefit you get in having Anthony when you've already got someone like Jaden Sancho in the club. Wouldn't it make more sense, like in that sense, spending money isn't pragmatic at all. It's just throwing money away to re- effectively replicate a guy you've already got. When, when you appoint someone like Ten Hag, the idea is you're appointing him because he's a good coach. Like he can coach, he can make the players better. And you've got, and like the one thing that it's so obvious to me watching Jason Sancho is that he, this guy is screaming out for a really good coach. Like, there's no question how talented he is. He's an unbel- he's, on the, he's one of, the, he's genuinely one of the most gifted English t- footballers of his generation. Fantastic at Dortmund. Not really done much in Manchester United, if we're honest, so far. What he needs, I think, is you know, is some proper coaching and instruction as to what he's meant to do on the pitch. And so, to me, like the, the there is no joined up thinking if you go and buy this guy Anthony. No, it doesn't make no, sense. I, I would say, and especially for the, the prices quoted Anthony, it, it makes very little sense and and if you want to improve Jaden Sancho and you want to run this form of football then the team needs a right back they need a better right back they need someone who is intense in that overlapping room who understands the underlapping room we saw Ten Hag understood the necessity the need for the full backing in going out to get Terrell Malassia from Feyenoord and I think if Casemiro does you know Casemiro does come to the starting line and plays the majority of the games then ball progression will become the massive responsibility of the fullbacks. Malassia looks like he can do it every now and again Luke Shaw has done it 
perhaps to an extent that a fullback shouldn't be asked to do it. But in, in terms of Dalo, all I can provide is a is a is a hopeful shrug. And this is the confusing thing about Manchester United is that it is August and we've had a full course of preseason. And it seemed quite apparent that Ten Hag wanted to try and replicate the Ajax team of 2018-19. And we knew the areas of need. And yet those areas of need have not been addressed. And the style of football Manchester United seemed capable of playing now, especially Casemiro's come through the door, seems further from that soft blueprint of Ajax 2018-19 than it was during preseason tour. They, Manchester United need probably another midfield player to go alongside Casemiro. Uh, they probably need another right... They absolutely need another right back. They should probably need to have a big conversation about what they want to do with their goalkeeper. And there is the huge 37-year-old Portuguese elephant in the room as well that needs to be addressed. Carl, the, the attacking right back you're talking about that you say that Sancho needs, is there any way that could be Aaron Wambasaka? No. Yeah, that's that's a very definitive. You talk about another midfielder, but you could say the same. Talk about coaching young players. And I bang this drum a lot. But it, they obviously... Yeah, and I'm only doing this with an amateur eye. But, they, but why don't they just give Garner a chance? Why why don't <laughs> they give him a chance? I do not know. I, I'd say Garner's been quite unfortunate in that he missed the majority of the preseason tour due to the fact he was injured. I did not watch a large amount of Nottingham Forest week to week last season, but over the summer I've watched a number of games and he... And this sounds slightly odd. He does remind me a little bit of James Ward-Prowse in that he has a very good engine. He's got very good set-piece delivery. He has a bite in his tackles, but his mobility and top speed might not necessarily be the most thrilling. So we saw last season when Aston Villa defeated Southampton, Aston Villa simply seems to have an edict of let James Ward-Prowse run and it won't be too devastating. But if you tackle him, he might get a free kick. Um, And I think a midfield of Garner, Casemiro and someone else, again, doesn't necessarily solve the, the manner of ball progression. Garner is a, is a tidy passer. He's got a decent passing vocabulary and he has some confidence in how to use that. But I, I'm not sure he's quite the player. And when, when we talk about coaching a football player, we should also coach, we should also talk about what bits are they coaching? So there are some players at Manchester United squad who I think in terms of coaching is essentially when you get into this certain area, I would like you to think differently or do this. Um, there's always the story of when Pep Guardiola first met Raheem Sterling. Raheem Sterling would drift inward too often. So he painted a dot on the training pitch and said, Raheem, if you get confused as to where to stand during attacking, go stand on the dot because I need you to stand wide and do that. And that was a case of repetition, repetition, repetition. Where there are a number of players at Manchester United where I think one of their big problems is the interpretation of space. And at a certain age, if you can't do that in a certain area of the football field, you cannot play for a team that wants to be in the top six. Uh, and I'd say that's a huge problem in their central midfield areas. Garner seems to have a little bit more nous than, say, uh, the starters that traditionally start for Manchester United. But whether or not he can do that to a Europa League level or a, Champ- or a Champions League level, I'm pulling a face. I'm, I'm making a gesture with my hands. It's TBC. I'd just end on a, a on a positive, although Manchester United struggles are a positive for many people, but uh, on, <laughs> on a positive uh, note. Uh, and I say this with the caveat that maybe... In, Six weeks' time, Manchester City and Liverpool will be the top two and will have opened up a gap. Who knows? But at this early stage, this season is looking great, isn't it, Jack? It's been really, really good so far. Like The the quality of games, the drama of the games, uh, it's still, I think, too early really to get a read on how good teams are going to be, to be very honest. I know we spend a lot of time doing that, but... Uh, anyway, uh, but yeah, I think every uh, basically every day on which there's been Premier League action of, across all three weekends so far has been fantastic. It's been really, really, really good. There are so many teams who look like they, and it is, it is very early, Carl, as we say, but who look like they can 
at least give it a good go against the so-called top six, whether that is Newcastle, Brighton, Palace, Leeds, Fulham, Forest. You know, there are, there are and I'm probably Brentford, of course. There are a lot of teams who look like they can more than hold their own. Yes, I think if you are a La Liga watcher or a Bundesliga watcher, you're probably looking at the Premier League going, well, that's the Super League. That's that's where the talent goes to. If you, you can only look at how Nottingham Forest and where Nottingham Forest are purchasing their players from. Or if, indeed, if you look at, say, Tottenham Hotspur's struggles to offload a play of Los Celso's talent and the fact that no one can afford him on permanent wages or in Dombele's going to Napoli for, I think, a, a, a loan fee of less than one million. The Premier League is, is the global brand. This is where the best managers and the best players go to. Uh, often, you know, the joke used to be Dortmund's best players go to Bayern Munich. I think Dortmund's best players now end up in the Premier League in some shape or form. And what you've got is a league of fantastic tactical variants. Some of the brightest managers in Europe, I think, now are, are in the Premier League. Not just at the top, but also in the, in the middleweight section as well. And the fun bit of the intangibles. I am really going to be excited to see whether or not Nottingham Forest can build home field advantage over this Premier League season. Carl, Jack, thank you very much. Remember that for the very latest on everything happening in the transfer window, plus in-depth analysis and coverage of every Premier League team, you can head to The Athletic. Go to theathletic.com slash footballpod and you can subscribe for just a pound a month for the first six months and on this podcast feed tomorrow we'll have a brand new episode for you available from the afternoon. The Athletic.